there's no better feeling than a personal win. And the State Farm Personal Price Plan can help you do just that. Talk to a State Farm agent today to learn how you can bundle and save with the personal price plan. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. Prices are based on rating plans that vary by state. Coverage options are selected by the customer. Availability, amount of discounts and savings, and eligibility vary by state. This episode is brought to you by Liquid IV. In heart-pumping moments, you need hydration that can keep up. That's where Liquid IV comes in. Scientifically formulated to quickly replenish electrolytes and fluids lost from your well-earned sweat session. Hydrate your favorite mode of movement with Liquid IV. Made with triple the electrolytes of the leading sports drink, plus eight vitamins and nutrients. Also available in sugar-free. Tear, pour, live more. Visit liquidiv.com to learn more. Is it time to change your approach and switch to Air Supra, albuterol budesonide? Now you can virtually connect with a doctor to discuss your options and see if it's time to make a change. If appropriate, you may even be able to get a prescription for Air Supra the same day. Talk to a doctor today and see if Air Supra is right for you. Visit airsupraconnect.com to connect with a provider. Hey, it's your host, Carter. I wanted to give you a little bit of a warning. Kids who are under the age of 13 might find some parts of our show a little bit scary, so listener discretion is advised. Now, enjoy the show. Benjamin! John! Happy Christmas! Same to you. Come on in. The duck is almost ready to be served. It's Christmas 1799. And all over New York City, families are celebrating. Before we begin, let Thomas say grace. You don't have to embarrass the boy. He's old enough now. Go on, Thomas. <clears throat> See, you put too much pressure on him. <laughs> Go on. Bless us, O Lord, for the gifts you have put on our table and for all who are gathered here with us. Amen. 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 They're enjoying Christmas dinners. And good cheer. A toast to my friend Benjamin. We are so happy you could join us on this special day. Here, here. But at one home, there is no joy. At one table, there is an empty place. Is there any word? Nothing new. I I can't think. I, I just hope. I believe. Uh, we're praying for her, Margaret. Because a young woman has been missing for three days. Since the night of December 22nd. Well, one day was surprising. Two days was alarming. And three, well... Is there anything more we can do? I don't... I keep waiting for her to walk through that door. So, while the rest of Manhattan enjoys the holiday... What do you say, dear? Time for the Christmas pie? Is everyone ready? I'm so stuffed I couldn't eat another bite. Oh, I'm sure you could find room. And honors the spirit of the day. I must say, that was a wonderful feast you prepared. Thank you, sir. Here is 15 shillings for Christmas. Much appreciated, sir. One family is left to fear the worst. I can't give up hope. She's going to be all right. She has to be. I just want to see her smile one more time. Welcome to Unsolved Murders, True Crime Stories. I'm Carter Roy. And I'm Wendy McKenzie. Today, we're opening our investigation into the case of Elma Sands. A young woman who disappeared from her boarding house in New York City in December of 1799. It was a case that galvanized the biggest city in the country in the founding days of the United States. 
and it would come to involve many prominent men. A future mayor of New York, a successful builder in Manhattan, the chief justice of the New York Supreme Court. Not to mention the legal dream team that worked as defense counsel. One member of the team would go on to be a Supreme Court justice. And surprisingly, he would become the least remembered of the three. Because the other two lawyers toiling beside him had such a profound effect on American history that their names are still well known today. Aaron Burr and Alexander Hamilton. This is episode 25 of Unsolved Murders, True Crime Stories, the story of Elma Sands. If you want to review an episode of Unsolved Murders or to hear our investigation into other cases, you can find them all on iTunes, Stitcher, SoundCloud, or any other podcast directory, as well as our website, parcast.com. That's parcast.com, spelled P-A-R-C-A-S-T.com. And make sure you don't miss anything by subscribing to the podcast. Again, on iTunes, SoundCloud, Stitcher, or any other podcast directory. A new episode of Unsolved Murders is released every Tuesday. Don't forget to visit our Facebook page, ParCast, to join the conversation. And now, back to Elma Sands. She was born Gulielma Sands. But all her friends called her Elma. She lived at a boarding house in Greenwich Village that was run by her cousin Catherine and Catherine's husband, Elias Ring. Elma, can you give me a hand with the laundry? Sure, Aunt Catherine. In July of 1799, she met a new boarder, Levi Weeks. Hello, I'm Levi. Elma. Most pleased to meet you, Elma. Dinner is served promptly at six. Looking forward to seeing you there. Levi was a carpenter who had moved down from New England. What brings you to New York City? I'm here to work for my brother, Ezra. Ezra Weeks? The builder? Is that supposed to impress me? (laughs) He's only the biggest developer in all of New York. In that case, I'd really be impressed to meet your brother. It's true that Ezra Weeks was a wealthy and successful builder. Dare I say it? He might have been the Donald Trump of his day. Along with his other work, he designed Gracie Mansion, which is the official residence of New York's mayor. But his brother Levi had other designs in mind. Hello, Wilma. Fancy meeting you here. I live here, as you do. Well, then perhaps we should get together sometime. However, it appears Elma was not the only object of Levi's affection. Margaret, that is a lovely dress. Why, thank you, Levi. Though it may not be the dress so much as the wearer. Levi! Living at the boarding house were two other single women, Margaret Clark and Elma's cousin, Hope Sands. Hope, do you need a hand carrying that? Just up to the second floor. (laughs) Whoa! (laughs) Heavier than I thought. (laughs) You're going to owe me for this. Uh... Oh, you what? Well, I'm sure we can work out something. What a scoundrel. But soon, Levi was concentrating his romantic efforts on Elma Sands. Tonight, Elma, it is our night. Shh, I don't want the others to hear. Who cares? Let's shout it from the rooftops. Levi! Was this because Levi was truly in love with Elma, or because she was the only one returning his affections? Mm, An interesting question, and one that others would soon be asking. Elma... What do you have planned for tonight? Nothing. Me too. Let's do nothing together. This relationship seems to be moving pretty fast. Indeed. Before long, the two unwed lovers were spending the night in Elma's room. (gasps) Scandalous. It certainly was at that time. Elma, it's Levi. Come in, quick, before anyone sees. But they did see. Did you notice last night? Notice what? It's not my place to speak out of turn, 
but a certain boarder from Massachusetts seems quite fond of your niece. And you're saying that that wasn't socially acceptable at the time? Mm, not at all. Levi. <sighs> yeah? <sighs> Levi, it's morning. You've got to get out of here. Oh, I don't want to leave you. You don't want to leave the bed. Go on, Levi, wake up. All right, all right. Where are my boots? Well, the situation couldn't go on, so they made a plan. And Elma confided in her cousin Hope. I've got a secret to tell you, but you can't tell a soul. What is it? Me and Levi. Everyone knows. No, it's... we're going to get married. Congratulations! When did he propose? Are you asking me to be your maid of honor? No, not like that. We're going to elope. Tonight. Tonight? Tonight. <laughs> it was Sunday, December 22nd, 1799. That night, Elma's aunt, Catherine, saw her in her dress. My, Elma, you are quite a sight. Stop, Aunt Catherine. You're making me blush. And heard Elma leave at 8 o'clock. She heard it? That's right. Catherine didn't actually see Elma leave, but she heard the door. And assumed it was Elma leaving with Levi. But she didn't actually see it. No. Other witnesses said they saw Elma that night in a one-horse sleigh with two men. And did Levi own a one-horse sleigh? His brother Ezra did. Later that night... Levi returned to the boarding house, alone. Hello, Catherine. I'm home. Where's Elma? Oh, she's here, isn't she? No, she's not. At 10 o'clock? What is she doing out so late? I thought she was with you. No, I was at my brother's. But... I was spending the evening there. Where is Elma? This isn't like her. I don't trust Levi. Neither did Catherine Sands. I heard the horse and carriage for you and Elma. I'm sorry, ma'am, but you are mistaken. But regardless of her thoughts or suspicions, she could not change the unalterable fact. Elma Sands was missing. We'll return to our story in just a moment from the ParCast Network. This episode is brought to you by Etsy. Sound the gifting panic alarm. You need to get an amazing gift. Wait, no, the perfect gift. Relax. Now you can use gift mode on Etsy. Gift Mode on Etsy takes the stress out of gifting, so you can find the perfect item for anyone and any occasion. It's easy. Just tap or click Gift Mode on your Etsy app or Etsy.com. Then answer a few short questions about who you're shopping for and what they like. And Gift Mode instantly gives you curated gift ideas based on hundreds of personas. Now it's simple to find gifts made by independent sellers for all the people in your life. So whether you need a housewarming gift for the new homeowner or a birthday present for the pickleballer, Gift Mode has you covered. Need to find the perfect gift? Don't panic. Try Gift Mode on Etsy now. At IKEA, your dream home is a blue bag away. No matter the size of your space or budget, we've got everything you need to turn your dreams into reality. And now with new lower prices on hundreds of our most popular products, bringing the dream home is even easier. Like the gray strandum wing chair, was $369, now $299. And the IKEA Plus 365 nine-piece cookware set was $129.99, now $89.99. And hundreds more. Shop new lower prices at ikea-usa.com today. And now, back to our story. Elma Sands disappeared on the night of December 22nd, three days before Christmas. Of course, Christmas was a lot different in 1799 than it is for us today. 
Oh, you mean they weren't shopping at Amazon, setting up the elf on the shelf and watching It's a Wonderful Life? Uh, no. There have actually been celebrations around the winter solstice for thousands of years. Even before the birth of Christ. Well, in Scandinavia, the Norse celebrated from the winter solstice on December 21st through January with what they called Yule. In recognition of the return of the sun, fathers and sons would bring home large logs which they would set on fire. Then they would party until the fire went out. And that's where we get the tradition of the Yule Log. Exactly. And the Romans had their own celebration, Saturnalia, which honored Saturn, the god of agriculture. (laughs) Weren't the Romans always celebrating? (laughs) It does seem like it. Uh, The party would last for over a month, where food and drink were plentiful and hedonism reigned. To Caesar! In other words, the first office Christmas party. (laughs) It wasn't until the 4th century that Pope Julius decreed that December 25th would commemorate the birth of Jesus. Which essentially brought the pagan holidays under the umbrella of Christianity. And by the Middle Ages, Christianity was the biggest game in town. People would go to church on Christmas and then let loose in the bacchanalia that rivaled today's Mardi Gras. All they were missing were the beads. But there was a backlash in the early 17th century with the rise of a new strain of Puritanism. We need to end this Christmas madness. And in England, there was a battle between those who wanted the party holiday and those who decried the decadence. And in America... Well, America inherited the divisions from England. New England, which was settled by Puritans, didn't celebrate Christmas. But the settlers in Virginia kept up the Christmas tradition. So the pilgrims didn't celebrate? No. In fact, from 1659 to 1681, Christmas was outlawed in Boston. Hear ye, hear ye! It is hereby decreed that anyone celebrating Christmas in Boston will be fined five shillings. No Christmas, were they the Grinch? Well, let's not get ahead of ourselves. The Grinch didn't appear until Dr. Seuss wrote about him in 1957. Even Scrooge wasn't around until Charles Dickens wrote A Christmas Carol in 1843. Which was decades away. Keep in mind, Christmas didn't even become a national holiday in the United States until 1870, which was after the Civil War. And what about Hanukkah? Yes. Well, the Jewish people who lived in America celebrated Hanukkah, but a few things to keep in mind. The Jewish population in the United States was small in 1799. Which is not surprising, because this was before the waves of immigration of the 19th and 20th century. Well, what might be surprising is where the Jewish people lived. Where? Well, until 1840, the place that had the largest number of Jewish people in North America was Charleston, South Carolina. Charleston? I never would have guessed. (laughs) Also, Hanukkah in 1799, much like Christmas, was more a religious observance than a public spectacle. Come, Jacob. Let us light the menorah. And finally, Hanukkah was not one of the more important events in the Jewish calendar. And it's only in recent times, as Christmas has become all-encompassing, that Hanukkah has also gotten bigger. As a Jewish counterpoint. Yeah, exactly. But going back to Christmas in 1799. I get it. There weren't Christmas carolers roaming the streets and a big display in the window at Macy's. Well, there were Christmas carols, but... They were part of church services, as established by St. Francis of Assisi in the 12th century. Even songs that we would consider traditional carols. Silent Night, Hark the Herald's Angels Sing, Jingle Bells, Deck the Halls, Away in a Manger. Were written later, in the 1800s. Never mind Rudolph the Red-Nosed Reindeer, or Grandma Got Run Over (laughs) by a Reindeer. Well, Christmas in 1799, for those who celebrated, was likely to be a church service and then dinner with family and friends. 
No one was gathered around the Christmas tree waiting to see what Santa brought. And for the family and friends of Elma Sands, all that Christmas brought was anxiety. Because she had been missing since the 22nd. And by then, Hope Sands had revealed Elma's plans. She promised me not to tell. She's missing. You need to tell us. She said she was going to secretly marry Levi. And what did Levi say? He maintained his innocence. I swear I don't know where she is. I'm as worried as you are. Well, the situation was tense, and by now, they were anticipating the worst. On December 25th, at the boarding house in Greenwich Village, it was far from a merry Christmas. Christmas passed, and then the new year came without word or sign of Elma Sands. She had been missing for 11 days, when on January 2nd, 1800, there was a development. Here, catch! What a terrible throw! It went down the well! Don't worry, I'll get it. Wait, there, in the well. Do you see it? I see it. What is it? I think it's a woman's muff. Sadly, it was the fur muff that Elma Sands had borrowed from a neighbor to keep her hands warm that fateful December night. As a result, the well was probed. What's going on, officer? Stand back and let us do our work. We found something. This cannot be good news. It was not. It was the body of Elma Sands. What did Levi Weeks do to her? Well, don't you think you should wait for the facts before you jump to that conclusion? Ah, who else could it be? Well, we will see. A coroner's inquest was held, and an autopsy was performed on Elma Sands. After my full examination, I have determined that the cause of death was drowning. And what was the condition of the body? There were marks around the neck consistent with strangulation. And forgive me for being so indelicate, sir, but was she in a family way? No, she was not pregnant. The jury heard the evidence and reached a conclusion. It is our ruling that Elma Sands was murdered. And they indicted Levi Weeks. Uh, of course. In many ways, it seemed a simple open and shut case. Levi Weeks? Yes? You're under the arrest for the murder of Elma Sands. But perhaps it would not be so simple. Levi Weeks had been indicted for the murder of Elma Sands, and the trial was shaping up to be an historic event. Well, not only was it the first sensational murder trial in New York City, it was the first transcribed murder trial in the United States. It was only 24 years after the Declaration of Independence. And the Constitution had been adopted and signed in 1787. Which meant that the country was essentially 12 years old, not even a teenager. And it had established little to no legal precedence. The judicial system was still in its early formation. Well, the entire United States was in its early formation, we were only on our second president, John Adams, and the first president, George Washington, ah, very good, had just died on December 14th of 1799. Only a week before Elma Sands was killed. The passing of Washington was a major event, and he was eulogized by Colonel Henry Lee. He was first in war, first in peace, and first in the hearts of his countrymen. But now John Adams was in the White House. Well, there was no White House yet. Oh, that's right. And the capital was in Philadelphia. It didn't move to Washington, D.C. until June of 1800. Still, New York was the biggest city, right? Yes, but the country was very much an agrarian society. We were a country of farmers. And the population in 1800 was 5.3 million, but only 6% lived in the cities. New York, which was the largest city, only had 60,000 people. 
Only 60,000. Just to put that in perspective, the current capacity of Giants Stadium is 82,000. So you could put the entire population of New York City in 1800 in the Meadowlands today, and it would still be over a quarter empty. And the other big cities were even smaller. Behind New York in population was Philadelphia at 41,000 people, then Baltimore at 26,500, and Boston at just under 25,000. Boston had less than 25,000 people? Nowadays, there are that many Wahlbergs. Well, there were 16 states. The original 13, along with Vermont, Kentucky, and Tennessee. And the original 13 were... Delaware, Pennsylvania, New Jersey, Georgia, Connecticut, Massachusetts, Maryland, South Carolina, New Hampshire, Virginia, New York, North Carolina, and Rhode Island. Ooh, and no breath. (laughs) Impressive. Well, you didn't think you were going to trip me up, did you? And then there were the dubious historical realities. Women, of course, did not have the right to vote. Mm -hmm. And of the 5.3 million people living in the U.S. in 1800, almost 900,000 of those were slaves. So that's the context of the time when Levi Weeks was indicted. Mm -hmm. In colonial times, criminal defendants did not have the right to counsel, but with the judge's permission could discuss points of law with an attorney. Your Honor, if it pleases the court, I'd like a moment to confer with my client. That would change with Levi Weeks. He was able to assemble a dream team of prominent defense lawyers. So maybe exceptions were being made because he had wealth and connections. Or maybe the country was starting to live up to its ideals that everyone is entitled to a lawyer. Fair point. But even with his dream team, Levi Weeks was facing an uphill battle. All the pretrial publicity had contaminated the jury pool. First, before the funeral, the body of Elma Sands was put on public display at the boarding house. Such a tragedy. My condolences on your loss. The crowd grew so big inside the house that eventually the open casket was moved to the street. Stand back. Let us pass. Where thousands of mourners would pay their respects. Thousands? Thousands. There she is. It's such a shame. I hope whoever did this pays for what he did. Then the story that Levi was going to marry Elma the night she disappeared made it into the newspapers, including the New York Gazette and General Advertiser. But alas, little did she suspect that the arrangements she had been making with so much care would direct her to that born from which no traveler returns. At the same time, Richard Croucher, who lived at the boarding house, had started a whisper campaign. Have you heard the latest? No. The girl, Elma Sands. She was killed by Levi Weeks. Really? How can you be so sure? Trust me, I saw them at the boarding house. They were close. He wanted out, so she had to go. But to kill her? He had a guy from New Jersey help him. Nobody's supposed to know this, but the accomplice already confessed. Handbills were published, possibly by Croucher himself, implying Weeks's guilt. Handbills? Leaflets that were distributed on the street. It was the 1800 version of the newsfeed on Facebook. Levi wasn't able to tweet that he was innocent. Well, he was certainly at a disadvantage. So much so that it was only natural to ask the question. Was the trial just going to be a formality that confirmed what everyone already knew, that Levi Weeks was guilty? As he went on trial for his life, Levi Weeks assembled what was called a dream team of defense lawyers. Just like the OJ trial. Except this was the original dream team, and it happened 195 years before OJ. Well, still, there were obvious parallels. A wealthy and well-connected defendant accused of killing a former lover. Mm -hmm. And the trial dominated the media. Exclusive coverage! People versus Levi Weeks! It was the first murder trial that was editorialized in the New York newspapers. 
If we want our city to be safe, should not those who perpetrate such dishonorable acts, especially against a poor defenseless woman, be punished most severely? Sex, money, murder, it all sells. Mm. Well, the first member of the Dream Team was Henry Brockholst Livingston. Well, that's certainly a name. Henry Brockholst Livingston was a Princeton graduate, then known as the College of New Jersey. He served as an American Revolutionary War officer, passed the bar in 1783, and was now in private practice. Members of the jury, remember there are two sides to every case, and I ask you to keep an open mind when you hear the prosecution's side until we have time to present our defense. That is your sworn duty. After this trial, he would go on to serve as a justice on the New York Court of Appeals, and then he would be nominated by Thomas Jefferson to the highest court in the land. The Supreme Court. He served 16 years as an associate justice. So he was obviously a talented and well-regarded lawyer. Yes. Well, the second member of the Dream Team was Aaron Burr. An interesting character. No doubt. Another Princeton grad, another Revolutionary War officer, Burr had already served as a senator from New York, but now he was working as a defense lawyer in New York. A politician turned lawyer. Now there's a man you can trust. Actually, he was still deeply involved in politics. Only four years before, he had run for president. And later that year, he would run for president again. If we are to break the Virginia coalition, I need your support. Can I count on your vote? And though Burr would lose to Thomas Jefferson, he would end up as the vice president of the United States. So we have a future Supreme Court justice and a future vice president. How could the third member of the team top that? Hmm. The third member was Alexander Hamilton. The Alexander Hamilton. Yes, the Alexander Hamilton. The founding father, the first secretary of the treasury, the face of the $10 bill. The guy from the Broadway musical. That too. Hamilton grew up in the British West Indies and came to the U.S. to attend Columbia in New York. The dream team needed someone from Columbia to balance out the Princeton grads. Hamilton was also a Revolutionary War officer. Apparently everybody was. And he served with distinction as an aide to General George Washington. After the war, he was an advocate for a strong national government, and he authored many of the Federalist Papers, which are still quoted today when attorneys get together to discuss constitutional interpretation. Which is always a fun night. Hamilton was a major voice in President Washington's administration. Because not only was he close with Washington, but he served in the cabinet as the Secretary of the Treasury. And back then, the cabinet was only four officials. The Secretary of State, the Attorney General, the Secretary of War, and the Secretary of the Treasury. Even the Vice President didn't attend cabinet meetings. It was a productive term for Hamilton at Treasury. Chief among his achievements was establishing a national bank for the country. But how does a man that powerful and high up in the government end up in a criminal court defending a murderer. Yeah, accused murderer. Oh, whatever. After his stint at Treasury, he returned to the practice of law in New York. And why was he working with Aaron Burr when they were rivals? Yes, they were definitely rivals. It's like Katy Perry and Taylor Swift making an album together. I admit, it was an unlikely choice given their history. Among other offenses, Burr blamed Hamilton for him losing his Senate seat. It's your fault, Hamilton. It was the voters who decided. But you spoke out so forcefully against me, it tainted the whole election. Still, they came together for this trial. And one big reason was because of the defendant's brother, 
Ezra Weeks. Oh yeah, I'm sure he was paying them very handsomely. Well, not only that, but Ezra actually had connections to Burr and Hamilton because he was doing work for both men. That's one way to make sure your contractor stays on schedule. Defend his brother in a murder trial. <laughs> Ezra Weeks was constructing the wooden piping for Burr's Manhattan Company, which supplied water to homes in the city. He was also building a country house called The Grange for Alexander Hamilton in Harlem Heights in Upper Manhattan. So they were all tied together. Well, and just in case that wasn't incestuous enough, Hamilton's country house, The Grange, was being built to rival Richmond Hill, the country home of, you guessed it, Aaron Burr. Burr and Hamilton. Even their country homes were rivals. But it wasn't only the defense team who had big names. The prosecutor in the case was Cadwallader D. Colden. The Cadwallader D. Colden? Very funny. Uh, yes, uh, the Cadwallader. At the time, he was assistant attorney general. But later, he would go on to become mayor of New York City. Well, it's great that all the lawyers on the case would go on to further success. But aren't we forgetting someone here? Elma Sands. She was the victim. Indeed she was. And as the people, noteworthy and otherwise, gathered in the courtroom that March, less than two months after Elma's body had been found at the well, there was one question on everyone's mind. Would her killer be brought to justice? The trial of Levi Weeks began on Monday, March 31st, 1800. Extra! Manhattan well murder! Read all about it! It was called the Manhattan Well Murder because... Because Elma Sands was found in the Manhattan Well. Doesn't seem too tricky. Nah, but one little wrinkle. Aaron Burr was a part owner of the Manhattan Well. And that gave him an extra incentive to put on a strong defense. Why? Well, he didn't want the reputation of his well to be associated with a murder. It could kill the business before it really started. It's hard to picture a competitive guy like Burr needing more incentive. I'm sure he wanted to win for his own reputation as a lawyer. Yeah, you may be right. On the morning of March 31st, all the principals were gathered in the courtroom. All rise. The Honorable Judge John Lansing presiding. Please be seated. Now, we've already mentioned how this trial has parallels in the O.J. Simpson trial, but one striking way it was different was in length. The O.J. trial took more than eight months. The trial of Levi Weeks only took two days two days. But they were long days. Back then, the trial would start early in the morning and then go all day until deep in the night, one o'clock, two o'clock in the morning. So marathon sessions. Mr. Colden, call your first witness. The people call Richard Croucher. Croucher was a resident at the boarding house. Mr. Croucher, what relationship did you witness between the defendant and Miss Sands? I was satisfied there was a warm courtship going on. I have known the prisoner at the bar to be with the deceased, Elma Sands. In private, frequently, and all times of night. I knew him to pass two whole nights in her bedroom. And what else did you observe? Once, lying in my bed, which stood in the middle of the room, and in a posture which was favorable to see who passed the door, and which I assumed on purpose. I had some curiosity. I saw the prisoner at the bar come out of her room and pass the door in his shirt only, to his own room. Leaving Elma's room only in his shirt? Once, too, at a time when they were less cautious than usual. I saw them in a very intimate situation. Order in the court. The case the prosecutor presented was circumstantial. Lots of cases are circumstantial. That doesn't necessarily mean weak. Colden made the links between Sands and Weeks. Elma told me that she and Mr. Weeks were going to be married. 
the night of the 22nd. She told me they were going to elope that very night. And tried to put them together in a sleigh on the night of her disappearance. On the night of December 22nd, what did you see? I saw a wooden sleigh with two men and a woman on the street driving near the well. And he established a timeline for the murder. A little after nine o'clock, I heard the cry in the direction of the well. It was coming from a woman who was in distress. When I got nearer to the well, I heard a second cry, but not as loud as the first, as if smothered. But often the witnesses for the prosecution... On the Sunday night the girl went missing, I heard the voice of a woman cry out, Lord have mercy on me, what shall I do, help me, gave testimony that was helpful to the defense. How near do you live to the well? It is 100 yards away. Was there snow on the ground? Yes. And did you see any sign of a sleigh there? No. The sleigh was important to the prosecution because it meant that Elma was not alone, and one defense theory, that Elma had committed suicide, wouldn't make sense. But this man just testified the woman was alone and cried out, which fit perfectly into the suicide theory. Well, at times, the long parade of witnesses told different stories that may or may not be relevant. And the defense was able to effectively cross-examine several witnesses. Are you sure this happened before Christmas? It might have been before, it might have been after. Well, there was also the fact that the streets of New York in 1799 were very dark at night. The whale oil lamps that lit the streets had been in place for decades, and the accumulated soot made them ineffective. Many had burnt out and were not replaced. Which muddied some of the testimony. At that distance, at that time of night, could you see her face? No. Then how do you know it was Elma? It was her shape. The prosecutor even messed up in calling the boys who found the muff at the well to testify because they could not read or understand what an oath was and were thus deemed incompetent. Which was a major embarrassment to the assistant attorney general. The trial dragged on until 1.30 in the morning, and the jury requested a recess because they were falling asleep. Although the court is reluctant to do so, we will adjourn until 10 o'clock in the morning. Constables. Please keep the jurors together in some quiet and convenient place, and I will send two more to make sure they get whatever refreshments they want. It was unusual to adjourn like that because usually a trial would last only a day. But they were back at it the next morning. The prosecution had concluded. We have a steady stream of witnesses. Are they all conspiring to railroad the defendant? A positive allegation may be founded in mistake, or what is too common, in the perjury of the witness. But circumstances cannot lie, and a long chain of well-connected, fabricated circumstances requires an ingenuity and skill rarely to be met with. And the defense went to work. First up was Aaron Burr. Gentlemen of the jury, I know well the public is clamoring for justice in this case, but justice means a just result. I beg you to have the fortitude to withstand any outside pressure and decide the case on its merits on its facts. His first line of attack was on Elma Sands' reputation. You were a boarder at the boarding house, were you not? I was. We have heard testimony about Mr. Weeks entering her room. I did not witness that, but I did see others. Others? Yes. I saw a man enter once, not Mr. Weeks. The very first American slut-shaming. Elias Ring also entered the room at all hours of the night. He could have easily been responsible for harming Elma and then disposing of the body. The defense also introduced medical testimony. Doctor, how did you prepare for your appearance in court today? 
I examined the body and the reports from the coroner's inquest. And what did you find? It is my conclusion that her death was a suicide, and her injuries were caused by the fall down the well. Then it was Alexander Hamilton's turn. He called witnesses to provide an alibi for Levi Weeks. State your name for the record. I am Ezra Weeks. And what were you doing the night of December 22nd? I was at my home with my wife and my brother, Levi. Well, of course his brother's going to back him up. And then there were the character witnesses. I've known Levi for years. I've never known him to be anything but gentle and kind. A man of integrity. Big deal. Every murderer can find somebody in his life who says he was an angel. Well, the defense also explored their suicide theory. We've heard much testimony about the involvement of Mr. Weeks and Elma Sands. Is that your recollection? Mr. Weeks paid as much, if not more, attention to her cousin Hope. And what did Elma say about that? I heard her say that she would kill herself with a full vial of laudanum if she had access to the drug. Objection! Hearsay! Oh, maybe you should have been the prosecutor. I think I would have done a better job. But the most dramatic testimony was Hamilton's cross-examination of Richard Croucher, the boarder who saw the couple in flagrante. Mr. Croucher, you have pointed the finger sharply at Mr. Weeks. Did you not have your own interaction with Miss Sands? I was coming up the stairs once, approaching her in the hallway, and I must have startled her because she jumped. And Mr. Weeks came to her defense? Yes, she called for him. But after that, I had nothing to do with her. Where were you on the night of December 22nd? I was visiting a friend. And what time did you usually return to the boarding house? Usually at 10 o'clock. And how about that night? It was after 11, nearly 11.30. Hmm. And on your way home, did you pass by the well? I took the normal route home. So, you were out extra late that night, passing by the well, and saw a woman who scorned you for another. No. It isn't reflected in the court record, but later, people claim that Hamilton held up a candelabra. By then, it was late at night, and the courtroom was lit by candles. Hamilton held up a candelabra to the face of Richard Croucher. I have special reasons. Deep reasons. Reasons that I dare not express. Reason that, when the real culprit is detected and placed before the court, will then be understood. The jury will mark every muscle of his face, every motion of his eye. I conjure you to look through the man's countenance to his conscience. Behold the face of the real murderer. Sounds like that might be an embellishment. It might. Later on, Burr would claim that he was the one who held up the candelabra, and biographies of both men attribute the stunt to them. Burr and Hamilton, even in their biographies, they're rivals. At 2.25 in the morning, testimony finally concluded, and the prosecutor approached the judge. Your Honor, I request another recess until morning. At such time, I will give my closing argument. But the judge denied it. No. The hour of the decision is at hand. The case of People versus Levi Weeks was about to go to the jury. Our story will continue in a moment after a brief message. The longest field goal ever attempted is 76 yards. The longest field goal ever missed? Also 76 yards. Why bring this up? Because knowing your limits matters, both when you're kicking a field goal and when you gamble. Betting more than you're comfortable with is like trying a 70-yard field goal. It probably won't go well. So set a limit when you gamble and stick to it. Want more helpful tips like this? Go to KeepItFunOhio.com for games, quizzes, and lots of ways to keep your gambling from getting out of hand. The most exciting part of a vacation stay at a home rental? Easy. 
It's being greeted upon arrival with a rusted lockbox affixed to the underside of a stranger's condo. Yeah, you simply twist knobs, click gears, jiggle it, and then rip it off its moorings, and voila! Your prize is a key to a questionable home rental and maybe tetanus. When you just want to get your vacation started by actually getting into your room, it matters where you stay. At Hilton, we deliver your key right to your phone on the Hilton Honors app. Hilton for the stay. And now, let's continue our story. After the defense rested in the case of People vs. Levi Weeks, Judge Lansing himself addressed the jury. Members of the jury, I instruct you to acknowledge that the state has failed to present its case and has not adequately connected all of its circumstantial evidence. Wait, the judge himself is telling the jury the prosecution hasn't met its burden? Yes. This system is rigged. I will now let you retire to your deliberations. After the judge just told the jury that the state hadn't made its case, was it worth having a deliberation? Well, it only took five minutes. Five minutes? I deliberated longer over what I wanted for breakfast this morning. Members of the jury on the charge of murder in the first degree, how say you? We find the defendant not guilty. Ooh, big surprise. After the reading of the verdict, the courtroom cheered. Mr. Weeks, you are free to go. Extra, Levi Weeks acquitted. All that's missing is Levi Weeks going on Larry King Live to say he's going to spend the rest of his life searching for the real killer. You seem awfully sure that Levi is guilty. Oh, there's no doubt in my mind. Well, haven't you ever heard the expression, better to let a hundred guilty men go free than to convict one innocent man? But he wasn't innocent. And others at the time shared that view. Well, a fat lot of good that does us. Well, if it gives you any consolation, the aftermath of the trial was not without its complications for Levi Weeks. After Levi Weeks had been acquitted at his murder trial... Uh, thanks to the clever lawyering of Aaron Burr, Alexander Hamilton, and that other guy. Henry Brockholst Livingston. Levi and his brother Ezra thought life would go back to normal. Ezra, we're having a party next week. We'd be delighted to have you there. It sounds splendid. Care if I bring a guest? Not at all. Your wife? Actually, I was thinking about bringing my brother Levi. Oh. Is there a problem? I don't think that would be... On second thought, we may not have room for a guest. I should really clear this with my wife first. But society was not so quick to forgive and forget. Hey, are you Levi Weeks? <sighs> I am. Murderer. You're a lion murderer. It was a time when public shame carried a real price. Ezra Weeks even approached one of the court reporters who made a transcript of the trial. This line here, I will make no statement as to the guilt or innocence of the defendant. I'll give you $500 to remove that sentence. I won't do that. In that case, I will buy up the entire run of this transcript for $1,500. Nope, I can't do that. So at least one person couldn't be bought by Ezra Weeks. And the public condemnation proved to be too much for his brother Levi. I can't stay in the city anymore. But where will you go? I need to find a place. Far away. First, Levi moved to Deerfield, Massachusetts, but the story followed him there. Then it was off to Cincinnati, Ohio, and Lexington, Kentucky, before he finally settled in Natchez, Mississippi. I know you want me to think that's a punishment, having to run away to escape his past. Mm, all the way to the Deep South. But he had a life in Natchez. Mm, that's true. He became an architect, got married, and had three kids. I just think he got off easy. The other people involved in the trial moved on as well. There were the lawyers. Well, 
We know the Cadwallader D. Colden went on to become mayor, even though he blew the prosecution's case. Henry Livingston was named to the Supreme Court. And Aaron Burr became vice president. And then there was Hamilton. He not only got a musical, but a song in the show. Nonstop references this very trial. But it wasn't all roses. There was a moment when Catherine Ring, Elma's aunt, confronted Alexander Hamilton outside the courtroom. Mr. Hamilton, Mr. Hamilton. Yes, ma'am. I hope you die a horrible death. And as fate would have it, she got her wish. At the hands of Aaron Burr, no less. His old cold cancel. The bitter feelings between Burr and Hamilton, put aside for the trial of Levi Weeks, popped back up. The final straw for Burr was his belief that Hamilton destroyed his chance at being elected governor of New York in 1804. I challenge you to a duel. On my honor, I accept. Usually, a challenge to a duel was a chance for the two parties to get together to work out their differences. But the differences between Burr and Hamilton were so profound, they couldn't be reconciled. On the morning of July 11, 1804, the men and their seconds rode out to Weehawken, New Jersey. Dueling was illegal, but they felt New Jersey was less likely to enforce the law than New York. Gentlemen, you will now ready your weapons in full view of your opponent. It seems crazy to us that they actually went through with it. All parties, advance to your stations. But they continued on through each step, adhering to the rigid code of conduct and the rules that they had agreed to. Mr. Burr, have you readied yourself? Aye. Mr. Hamilton, have you readied yourself? Aye. And because they didn't want witnesses to the illegal act, the seconds and a doctor who was there turned their backs. Present. Hamilton was shot in the lower abdomen, above the right hip, and the bullet lodged in his spine. The doctor who was there couldn't do anything. Even with modern medicine, he would have at least been paralyzed. Well, Hamilton was brought to his home, where he died the next day. Meanwhile, Burr was unharmed. And Hamilton's shot had missed. And there are a few theories why. Because there were no witnesses, it's all speculation. People can't even agree on who shot first. Well, one theory is that Hamilton wasn't used to the dueling pistols they used, and the hair trigger caused him to fire off the mark. Another theory is that Hamilton threw away his shot. He missed on purpose. He wanted to show he had the courage to participate in the duel, but he was honorable enough not to kill. And then there's the theory that Hamilton was hit first and fired wildly after being wounded. No matter which theory, Burr was unharmed, but he would be charged with murder. Ironically, the man who had defended a murderer now stood accused of the horrible crime himself. And the duel he had undertaken to restore his honor had the opposite effect. Aaron Burr's political career was over, and he would spend the rest of his life in the shadows. Do you really think Levi Weeks is innocent of murdering Elma Sands? Mm, I definitely think there's reasonable doubt. Maybe she did want to kill herself, or maybe it was someone else. Are you nuts? It was Levi. Well, remember Richard Croucher? The one that the defense pointed to as a possible murderer? That was just a courtroom tactic. Well, Croucher was accusing Weeks, but he had the means and he had the opportunity himself. And he had a motive, if you believe he was jealous. Now you sound like Hamilton himself. But what you don't know is that after the trial, Croucher showed himself to be of bad character. How bad? He was convicted of sexually assaulting a 13-year-old girl, and reportedly he fled to England where he was executed for committing a terrible crime. What terrible crime? Well, no one seems to know. That sounds dubious. So, I guess that's our Facebook poll. Who 
killed Elma Sands. Was it Levi Weeks? Yes. Was it someone else? Possibly Richard Croucher? No. Or did she commit suicide? Well, I'm not buying that. Let us know what you think, because the case remains officially unsolved. But not forgotten. Because there was once a vibrant young lady who walked the streets of Manhattan. Hello, Aunt Catherine. Beautiful day, isn't it? And almost Christmas. Who thought she had found her true companion? He loves me, and I love him. And we'll spend the rest of our life together. And sadly, lost her life. The site where she died, the well at 129 Spring Street, is now a brightly lit clothing store. Where people, oblivious to the past, hunt for the perfect Christmas sweater. But we remember... Some say the ghost of Elma Sands haunts that store now. I'd like to think that's true, that Elma Sands won't rest until everyone knows her story and finally holds accountable the one responsible for her death. Don't forget to subscribe to Unsolved Murders on iTunes, SoundCloud, Stitcher, or any other podcast directory, or through our website, parcast.com. That's P-A-R-C-A-S-T dot com. A new episode of Unsolved Murders True Crime Stories comes out every Tuesday. Let us know what you think and join the conversation on our ParCast Facebook page. You can tweet us at ParCast Network. That's P-A-R-C-A-S-T Network. We thank you for listening and hope you'll join us for our next episode when we return from the holidays on January 3rd. If you enjoyed this episode, please tell your friends. We hope you have a happy and healthy holiday season. And enjoy good tidings throughout the coming year. I'm Carter Roy. And I'm Wendy McKenzie. We'll see you next time. Grandma got run over by a reindeer. If we live till next time. Unsolved Murders True Crime Stories was created by Max Cutler, is a production of Cutler Media, and is part of the Parcast Network. It's produced by Ron and Max Cutler, sound designed by Ron Shapiro, with production assistance by Joel Stein, and written by Stephen DeLello. Unsolved Murders True Crime Stories stars Carter Roy and Wendy McKenzie. The amazing cast of voice actors include, by alphabetical order, Matt Cannon, Micah Posey, Kimberly Holland, Mick Lambeth, Janice Liebhart, Michael Malconian, Stephen Pinto, Gregory Polson, and Vanessa Richardson. <laughs>